You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin our proceedings here today by calling out to the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out first to my ancestors and to yours. I call out to all of those people who lived well and died well and bring all that is good and true and beautiful through our ancestral lines to us in that great legacy that we, the living, can lean into can learn from those who have gone before us, can draw on this great resource of wisdom and strength and love and to show up here in our day, in our time and to meet the challenges of our time in ways that are innovative where they must be and deeply rooted in those traditions that help human beings to be their very best in the world. And so I call out to these ancestors to join us here today to be with us and help us to do good work. And let us reach through those human ancestors and open our awareness to the great web of life, to those many, many living beings that have been here on earth long before there was ever the first human. And we call out to these non-human ancestors to be with us here today to help us to remember our true nature, to settle into that which makes a human being truly unique in the great web of life. And we ask these ancestors to help us as we surrender into that true nature to drop the arrogance and the ignorance that allows human beings to make an awfully big mess in the world in which we live. So I call out to these non-human ancestors to be with us, to help us once again, to learn to be the best of what humans are born to be and to bring our songs and our blessings into that great web of life in a way that is good for all living things. So as these ancestors and helping spirits gather around us here today, let us gather ourselves, drawing ourselves from wherever we might be into our heads, from our heads to our hearts and our hearts down into our bellies. And let us take a moment and reach down to the earth. Stop all the many multitasking things you're doing and do this one thing with heart and focus and give thanks for this day. For this profound opportunity to be alive in this day. For the beauty and the diversity and the wonder of life itself. And with that gratitude in our hearts, let us reach down through all the layers of the earth. Allowing our gratitude to pour out to the earth for countless, countless blessings as we reach all the way down to the very center of the earth and anchor ourselves firmly there. And let us take a moment and just shift our awareness to honor and respect and ask for the assistance of those things that gain their power through darkness and stillness, through silence and solitude through that wisdom that we access when we close our eyes and are silent. 
And let us draw on this great resource, this energy that is before all the beauty and the diversity that we enjoy here on the face of this earth. Let us give thanks to that energy that nourishes and supports it all and draw it up into ourselves and into our day. Just like crystal clear water on a hot part today, we draw this earth energy into ourselves to draw up nourishment and restoration and replenishment and to draw into ourselves the profound wisdom of manifestation, how to be here in form in a good way. And as we draw this earth energy up and send our own energy down as grounding, let us come to understand who we are what we stand for and what has heart and meaning in our own life and draw our sense of what has value, what becomes our traditions out of what truly has heart and meaning. And as we do this, let us still remember to open our doors, to open our table, to be with people who are other than we are, who value other things, who share other things that have heart and meaning and let those discussions that ensue, those engagements that happen open ourselves to grow to truly become the men and women that we were meant to be and as we do this let us come into greater understanding of all the different aspects of ourself to come into right relationship with ourselves, with each other with the environment with the invisible world and ultimately the great web of life And as we come into alignment with the great rib of life, let us understand that as our definition of right relationship. As we raise our awareness up, up into the sky above, through the atmosphere, all the way up into the cosmos, reaching all the way up to the highest power of the universe and connecting to this energy, seeing yourself in it and it in you, and beginning to draw this energy down. Drawing into yourself, drawing into your day, drawing into these proceedings, the essence energy of blessing and protection. Calling in devotion and commitment, inspiration and illumination. We draw these energies in to feel the benevolence of our universe moving into our head and our heart and our belly as we draw this golden energy from above, all the radiant divine light from above, down through ourselves, connecting it deeply into the center of the earth and allowing the earth and sky, these two great legendary lovers, come together in us, connecting through us, And may that big love that they share awaken the spirit of your own heart. And may that crucible of transformation that exists in the human heart come online and be alive within you today, drawing up the fiery passions of your belly that have that deep, deep burning for why you are here uniquely in this life. And draw down the crystal clarity of your mind to help you understand how are you going to do that? How are you going to bring your medicine to the world? And we draw these energies into the heart. In this deep, deep, deep dance of that which we're here to do and how are we going to do it in our heart so we may find in our heart this, this deep understanding of what it is that we can do in this day to begin to bring our gifts to the world. And we give enormous gratitude to all the helping spirits that assist us in this at all times. May what needs to be said be said here today and what needs to be heard be heard and may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. And I'd like to give thanks to some special living things, to Irene and Cynthia, Tanya, Nina, Rebecca, Anne, Julie, and Michelle, and all of the other listeners who have donated to this show. 
For those of you who are listening for the first time, Why Shamanism Now is listener-supported. We've been on the air now going on, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years. I'm losing count. And we are doing this only because of your support. So if this show moves you in any way, even if it moves you to irritation and frustration, you have been moved. And I ask you to do this primarily fundamental, most shamanic of things, which is to allow that which moves you in your heart to motivate your actions in the world. And do something, large or small, to help the show to grow. And if you are unable to donate financially, there are many, many ways that you strengthen the show, as you know, to share, to bring the teachings into your journey circles, to bring them into your practices, to share your questions, and to help us understand how do we bring shamanism into our contemporary lives in a way that meet the challenges of our time. And for those of you that don't know, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com because you download your shows through iTunes. You don't even know we've got our own website. You can go there to the support button, uh, scroll down, donate any amount, large or small, in any currency. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air and the archives available free to anyone in the world who can get themselves onto the Internet. So thank you, everyone. So today we are live. If you have questions about today's topic, you can call in at 512-772-1938. Um, you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, and you're always welcome to email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. Now today, our topic is listening to ayahuasca, and our guest is Rachel Harris. Thank you for being with us here today, Rachel. Hi, Christina. Thank yeah. you so much for that inter- that um, meditation. It was wonderful. You're welcome. Are you in Maine on your I, island? I'm on an island off the coast of Maine. Oh, yes. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for those yeah. of you that, that don't know, Maine is on the entire other side of the North American continent from me. We could, we could like barely be further apart, but it's wonderful. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, Rachel Harris, PhD, is the author of Listening to Ayahuasca. She received a National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award and has published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals. She has worked as a psychological consultant for Fortune 500 companies and the United Nations. And as we said, she lives on an island off the coast of Maine, which sounds absolutely delightful. So for those of you that don't know, Rachel has been in her practice for 35 years. She has um, deep training also as a research um, in, in the scientific research. And it's, it's largely this the beauty of this combination as well as Rachel's own heart that shows up in her book, which is the reason – Though I am given many, many books on ayahuasca, they do not all show up on this show. (laughs) So anyway, uh, if you would like to contact Rachel, she can be reached through her website at listeningtoayahuasca.com. All right. So Rachel, I just wanted to share with you, just to be really transparent, because I've been a little bit on a soapbox these last few months, um, part of what I love about your book, which honestly I have never seen in anything else, I mean, granted, your book's pretty unique anyway, but the point is you're so open and clear about how you have a different perspective than the shamans, and you don't always understand what the hell they're talking about. Uh, uh, pretty much never. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what and can I, I say? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a humble Western psychologist. I have no idea what they're talking about. Exactly, and that that ability in the book to uh, 
steps to carry their piece of the book as they present it and say, and I don't exactly know what this means, but this is really what they say. This is what they do. Instead of what I see in most books, which was a big problem researching my encyclopedia, frankly, which is the constant Western reinterpretation, which really sort of sounds like they don't really know what they're saying, so they must really mean this. <laughs> it's like, and you seem to yeah. be really clear. No, they don't really mean that. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, for me, there's a lot of mystery. Yeah. In in my own experience and in my own reading, and um, even in the academic world, there's there's a good bit of uh, controversy about what the shamans really mean. I mean even my own experience with a traditional shaman, um, I I have a real experience of his lineage. Do I understand that? N- not at all. Um, yeah. And yet, it's real for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's that's just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's 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 cover some ground. There's always the potential that we've got a whole bunch of new listeners that don't know what we're talking about. Okay. But okay. in general, you know, the audience is <laughs> sort of dedicated followers, and so they they've been around the block before. But just yeah. in general, you know, just to put us all on the map here. So let's let's okay. simply. So what is ayahuasca? So ayahuasca is a tea made from two plants that are found in the Amazon basin. And it's used by indigenous peoples of um, the Amazon forest for very different reasons than Westerners use it. In in the jungle, often they use it for uh, sort of like a family dock for all kinds of healing purposes, but also for telepathically finding out where the... Uh, where the what direction the hunt should go in where where the animals were looking to hunt it's also used um for witchcraft kinds of questions like is my girlfriend cheating on me or how can i get this man to fall in love with me how can i bewitch him to to fall in love with me so the range of uses even in the jungle with indigenous peoples is is extensive mm-hmm. in the west you know when they've asked um, Westerners who are traveling to the jungle, what are what are you looking for in an, in your ayahuasca retreat? People are looking for psychological healing and spiritual development. So it's quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then when you're talking about grandmother ayahuasca, what are you, what are you meaning when you say that? Well, you know, I I I. I did a legitimate, a traditional research study and published it in a scientific journal, Journal of Psychoactive Drugs in 2012. And one of, and I had 81 subjects. They were all Westerners who had, the criteria was they had to have been in an ayahuasca ceremony at least once in North America. And one of the questions in this 16 page questionnaire, if you can imagine spending hours filling out a questionnaire, with essay questions. One of them was, I know it was really, and then after that, it was amazing. People filled it out. And then they wrote me personal letters because they really wanted to talk about their experience and how they Mm. changed and what it meant to them. And this was an opportunity for them to do it. And it was very helpful. But one of the questions was, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. And at that point, I, I mean, this is now about 10 years ago, I only included that question because a very intuitive Western shaman 
suggest that I include that question. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I did. I mean, I listened to my consultants, my expert consultants, and lo and behold, about 75% of the 81 people, which I think comes to 54 people, mm-hmm. said they had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. communicated with her intuitively, in dreams, in meditation. And some people heard an actual voice that they were clear was distinguishable from their own inner voices, mm-hmm. which is, is, that's the way Westerners like to reinterpret things. Oh, that's your inner voice talking to you. Mm-hmm. Even that's your inner wisdom. I, I've heard a voice, not frequently, but enough that I identified as grandmother ayahuasca. And I am absolutely clear. It is not one of my inner voices. <laughs> so, but now yeah. do I have, I mean, I'm very clear about that. Do yeah. I have an explanation for it? Absolutely not. Yeah. No clarity. I mean, I just, it's a phenomenon I've experienced. I had the opportunity to ask two very different Western religion professors, Bob Foreman. They're both friends of mine. Bob Foreman um, is an expert on mystical experience. And I said, okay, Bob, you know, I hear this voice. What is it? He looked me in the eye and said, you know, we don't really know. You know, within a year, I was sitting at breakfast with Houston Smith, and I asked him, and he gave me exactly the same answer. We don't know. And so that's part of the mystery that I live with and live in. Yeah. Yeah, I was only chuckling just because what I always want to say is, well, it can't possibly be my inner voice because they're just all so much smarter than I am. (laughs) There is that. I didn't know quite how to say that. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, um, so why did you write this particular book, Listening to Ayahuasca? Well, I I have to admit the the research study was a hundred percent guided by grandmother ayahuasca. I mean, even to the extent of um, consultation about data analysis and, and the research is reviewed in the first couple of chapters in the book. And, and, but it's mostly quotes from people describing um, not the, not the, the experience itself, but, but the impact of the experience and very much the psychological impact of, of the ayahuasca ceremony. But the rest of the book I felt compelled to do, which is a little different than being absolutely called and guided. I was, Mm -hmm. I do feel, you know, I don't say this kind of thing in all my interviews. Mm -hmm. I do feel there's no question I was helped along the way by the spirit of ayahuasca. But I did not hear a lot of instructions the way I did with the research. So there were times I felt, oh my goodness, I'm out here on a limb all by myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I just had, I felt really compelled as a Western psychotherapist, basically having spent my, most of my life working with people psychologically and spiritually in my office, private practice, that there's a wonderful opportunity after the ceremony. And I didn't see a lot of people seeking psychotherapy to make the most of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't want to see that opportunity missed or lost. Mm-hmm. And this is not a traditional indigenous perspective. I mean, the, the shaman living in the jungle, you know, have no clue about Western psychotherapy. Um, but there is tremendous healing that's uh, possible here. 
And I want people to have every opportunity to heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, in my own shamanic healing practice, I, I have people come and they'll say, well, you, you know, I always ask if they have prior experience with shamanism. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, uh, you know, ayahuasca, I've been, you know, drunk ayahuasca 150 times. I'm like, what the yeah. hell are you doing with me? Like what, what didn't happen in 150 times with ayahuasca that you would be here with me? And, and I think for me, mostly it falls into this realm that you're talking about, which is the experience is there and, and fully experienced at the time. But it's the preparation coming in and how we work with it following that we don't have the skills yet for. Well, you're asking a wonderful question of the person sitting opposite you. It's really the perfect question. And and you touched on this in your opening meditation. How can I bring my medicine, whatever that is, whatever my gift is, how can I bring it into the world? And um, that, of course, is the question of integration. Yeah. How, how do I bring what I've learned, what I've experienced, how I'm changed and, and in, into my life and, and into the world? What's my contribution? You know, I wasn't going to dive into this today because this could end up being the whole show, but well, it's a really interesting <laughs> distinction, you know, that you've made between how the, 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 how it feels different to be responding to a specific or precise calling and doing something you know is being guided that is likely an expression of your uniqueness. Like only you could have written this particular book and not just because of that's true for everybody. We're all individuals, but more the sense, the huge training of your mind, the years you've invested in the research perspective, years in the practice perspective, and then the willingness just to go do this, the years invested in it. It puts you uniquely positioned to do a particular thing. And and so from my perspective and my language, there's a lot of soul's purpose in that where it's not like you're just doing an errand for the spirits, right? <laughs> that this is a co-created thing. Thank, thank you. You know, Thank and there's you. this feeling of, crap, I'm out on a limb, where are you? <laughs> you <laughs> right. Know, which isn't <laughs> the same as this, 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 this calling feeling where it's almost like every step is being, you know, glows in neon and you just put your foot in it. And, um, and, and I think this is important when we talk about ayahuasca because ayahuasca tends to call everybody to do, you know, it's like everybody's got a calling from ayahuasca, right? And what is that, you know, <laughs> and I think there's a, um, a growing experience that I'm seeing in people is that they've gotten off the track of their their personal actual purpose running around doing errands for ayahuasca and not sitting back and going, wait a minute, I'm a sovereign being here and I need to step into a co-created relationship with ayahuasca, not just run around and do errands. Right. So this is a very – well, first of all, I, I really do appreciate your – you're saying this about me personally because it's it's really true and I I put my heart and soul and all my years of experience and research into the book and I do appreciate your saying that and recognizing it. Um, the question you're raising is the very traditional issue of discernment and what am I being, um, what is being asked of me, what am I being guided to do, what is my calling, what's my highest purpose? These are all questions of of discernment and how to um, differentiate what's my egotistical need here 
and what's my purest contribution and how do I differentiate these different aspects of what I'm doing Mm. and and come from the cleanest place possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautifully said. And then when if you add to that people running off to do ayahuasca as the very beginning awakening of their psychological maturity and their spiritual awakening, then that discernment piece is um, really highly problematic. <laughs> right? well, let, me, let, let me give a real good example of, of um, what happens if there is no psychotherapy after. And just a good example of, sure. of when it's needed. And that is this young woman. I mean, I'm, I made the conscious decision during the research. If anybody wanted to meet with me, talk to me, anything, my answer was always yes. And so she came to my, this woman who had completed the research form came to my office to talk about the research. It was not a psychotherapy appointment. And it was right before Thanksgiving. She, um, dropped by where I was living in Princeton, New Jersey on her way home for Thanksgiving. She was about 27 or 28 years old. She'd had a wonderfully inspired ayahuasca ceremony where she felt she made contact with the archetype feminine, the feminine divine. I mean, she, that she was really connected to grandmother ayahuasca in this archetypal way. And she went on and on about how wonderful this was and how it was helpful. And, and I, I was fine for about 40 minutes and then I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, as a therapist, I couldn't resist. And I said, how's your relationship with your mom? And she burst into tears and I said, okay, well now this is where the work is. And this is a beautiful example of, um, you know, trying to transcend a psychological issue and move into spiritual archetypal reign, realms. And we just cannot skip that. We can't skip our own uh, history and our mm-hmm. own personal business. We have to deal with it. Absolutely. So um, this is what's usually called a spiritual bypass, that yeah. the psychological issues are bypassed um, and really defended against using the spiritual framework. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, of course, I suggested she... <laughs> seek psychotherapy i don't know if she did or not it's painful it's diff- this is difficult work i mean who wants to work on their mother again and again mm-hmm, <laughs> I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's sure. like, you know are we ever finished and yet um this is part of the relationship with grandmother ayahuasca and and she brings up different parts of our history that we do need to work with Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I, I've yeah. just lapsed into personifying grandmother ayahuasca. Mm. And I, you know, it's, uh, this is really still a leap for me. Uh, you know, if you ask me flat out, do you really believe, believe, you know, I get very confused. I don't mm-hmm. know how to answer that. Mm-hmm. So, but I go in between the two. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just you know, chuckling because, yeah, and, <laughs> sure. I'm just laughing because I realize I, I keep catching myself in conversations with people who have no idea what I'm talking about, referring to the spirits I work with literally as people. So they people think this is literally the people I meet at work. Exactly. <laughs> Around the coffee yeah, machine. So yeah. I think in a roundabout way, we have really explored why this book is is unique and important um if there's anything else around that you you want to say um, well i i would i i used myself as an example and um in in some of my difficult 
journeys and, and what it meant for me psychologically and the trouble, you know, what was challenging for me to deal with and painful. And I have at times regretted people knowing so much about me, <laughs> but I wanted to share and, and have continuity in, in, in on, an example of somebody unfolding. And, and of course I gave lots of examples from other people who have talked to me and shared their journeys, but Throughout the book, with all the clinical examples, there's really a template about how to work in psychotherapy with these unusual spiritual experiences, whether as experienced in an ayahuasca ceremony or even just spontaneously. And I think we need to have more understanding as therapists um, about how to work with spiritual experiences. And there's really a template in the book about how to do that. And that's relevant for the question that's arising in the ayahuasca community of how do I integrate my experience? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so here's one therapeutic answer. And this is, this is, um, one of my sort of impassioned pleas that comes up again and again and again, which would be if, if the psychological world could treat the shamanic world as respective colleagues and start to have these conversations and work together, people would end their suffering much more quickly. And it's such a, I've lucked out in my practice to almost always be in a situation where I'm taking referrals and then handing them back. (laughs) I'm working with therapists Uh through through my whole 30 years. And it's so fruitful and the, the people feel so supported and the pace, not that fast is always good, but they're able to go deep and complete and to keep things moving and not get into that place people can get into in therapy where they're really banging their heads on a wall. Right, right. And then the other side of it, like you said, is so then they leap for this big spiritual experience and then don't know how to integrate what that. What to in. do with it. Yeah. And so those are kind of right. the two sides that can happen. And and I feel like these two communities of practitioners would create such a beautiful healing opportunity world uh, if we would just start to actually talk to each other. <laughs> anyway, so this book is a beautiful, like you said, it's a beautiful opportunity for a therapist to say, I have no desire to do ayahuasca, but all of my 20-something clients are doing it. And so <laughs> I've got to figure this out. I mean, you can go buy one book and read it and, and it will give you a good, strong uh, foothold for where to actually begin to see how to use your your great skills and in integration in a way that that brings out the magic and the mystery yes and and because okay so to put a sharper point on it my experience when my clients go to therapists that don't have an openness to the magic and the mystery is it tends to be either diminished or cut off or pathologized right. yes i would agree i would agree and, yeah, and that and and so the potential is lost, you know, right. for the person. Yeah, you know. right, right, okay. and they can be harmed in that dis- mm-hmm. diminishment. People can be yeah. harmed. Um, there are young practitioners coming up who are both therapists and have ayahuasca experience and guidance, and I have great hope yeah. <laughs> that there will be more people like that. And um, there's something very special and kind of magical that that happens for me. When I'm sitting with someone and it's a therapeutic encounter and we're both connected to the spirit of ayahuasca. And yeah. I, 
you know, you have your own experience of this mm-hmm. sitting with people, I'm sure. But there is such additional help in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Um, when you talk about things opening up and moving more quickly and smoothly, it's uh, it's like nothing I've ever experienced before in psychotherapy, even when I think, oh, that was a moment of brilliance on my part, hooray for me, <laughs> or, or I just stumbled into something that was important. There's something really quite different when there's this other energy present and and guiding both of us. And that is remarkable to me. Yeah. So yeah. And, and you must have your own experience of that with people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And just um yes. So so just just to create some context here, I thought it was really interesting in your book to realize that that part of your you know, the beginning uh, roots of this desire to create this for people in some ways began in Esalen, watching people have other kinds of spiritual awakenings, and but uh, even in that context, not understanding how to integrate it. Well, I went to Esalen right after college, so I was 21 years old. Need I say I was wet behind the ears? Mm-hmm. It was ni- 1968. And I was really searching and I managed to enter into what I think was their third Esalen residential program. I think they tried to do maybe five of these programs with 10 or 12 people, very small select groups. And, and finally they just said they didn't know what they were doing. And so they stopped them. And then what they began to do is do work study programs that they continue to do now. But back then, this was a small group that met 40 or 50 hours a week, and we only worked on, on ourselves and our, and our group dynamics, and we had different specialists, very famous therapists, and psychics and religion professors come in and work with us and speak to us and, and um, consult with us. So it was this, and it went on for six months. So it was this very, um, it, it felt in some ways like I was living in a train station. We were there for six months. Meanwhile, workshops are going on. People are coming in and out every five days, every three days. And, and, um, and then I remained on the staff for a couple of years. So I was there totally over two years. And, um, so I saw a lot of people come and go and come back again and again and have these incredible breakthroughs and then come back and have the same breakthrough again. So how could I not ask what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> what's going yeah. on? And people would have these cathartic revelations and and then nothing would change and they'd have to come back almost to get another hit of this energy and have another breakthrough but not much change had happened and so you know this what finally the community began to ask what's the value of these cathartic experiences or these really high spiritual experiences? What do they mean and what difference do they make? And so these are the questions I've lived with all my life. And in my private practice, I tended to attract well-functioning people who were interested in a psychological spiritual journey, kind of the same people, the same clientele as who went to um, Esalen. So this has been my area of expertise my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I there are many, many 
psychologists who work with a much wider range of issues. And, and I really kept my practice like a boutique focused practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I heard a lot of unusual spirit, spiritual experiences over that time. And my question has always been about what happened after? What difference did this make? How, mm-hmm. how are you different? What's changed in your life? It's always been my question. Yeah, there's a beautiful phrase from the Quechua people, which is just simply wonderful. And does it grow corn? (laughs) Oh, beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, for myself, I always sit back and go, okay, because most of my shamanic everything happened out of any kind of context. So it's just me. And so I always have to step back and go, okay, Christina, but so what? Which right. is not very graceful. I thought. I thought this quote from <laughs> Roger Walsh was better. It's pretty it effective. It's better. It's like, okay, big high. Okay, great, Christina. But so what? 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 How is this going to matter? But Roger's quote of that you found. I, I remember this from a long time ago, and I lost track of it. The universal challenge is to transform peak experiences into plateau experiences. You know, the twenty-year-olds yeah. don't even know what that means. But anyway, this is back <laughs> with the human potential movement, right? Uh, epiphanies into personality, states into stages, and altered states into altered traits. Yeah, yeah. And that's the integration question. And that really requires work. And even Ralph Metzner said, um, you, you haven't begun to integrate unless you've expressed your experience in some way, whether it's a creative expression in poetry or music or drawing or dance or sharing it. There has to be some, you have to move it from the inside realm into the outer world. And then I'm saying even more, once you move your inner experience into the outer world, then you can look at it and it will have an impact. It will impact back on you. So there's this sort of reverberation process that happens where mm-hmm. it, it you're moving something from inside into the outer world back into the inner world, back into the outer world. And that's how it grows and you move through it. And it's this wonderful process, but it really is a process. And we, I, you know, I'm a proponent of therapy. I think it helps to have a witness to our process and somebody who reminds us with that question, I love it, does it grow corn? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that ability to say, okay, we talked about this pattern six months ago in this context. Do you remember? Right. And that witness can remember a lot of times when we can't. So with this thing you were just saying, though, let's talk about it. Let's let's talk about So how do you see um, ayahuasca and this capacity to, to work with that experience therapeutically helping – you know, helping, let's go through the depression, addiction, PTSD, and anxiety. So let's just start with depression. How do you see it helping depression? Well, now, now, you know, that's a question that I can, I, I would have to answer from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's mystery. And that is that some people have one ceremony of ayahuasca and are, and the depression lifts and never comes back. Now, I have no explanation for that. It's not, it's, there's no biochemical explanation because they only took ayahuasca once. We just don't know how to explain that. But for many people, that happens. And I, I, I absolutely called that, I think I called it a miracle cure. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it, and it happens with alcoholism as well. People wake up the, the next morning and say, alcohol is a poison. I'm never touching it again. And I have followed people up for five, seven years, and they are not in trouble with drinking. Either they mm-hmm. stopped completely or they drink very, very minimally. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the miracle cures. I personally was hoping I would have a miracle cure when it came to my sugar addiction. <laughs> and I have to tell you, this has not happened yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I am not one of those lucky people. Um, for the rest of us, there's some process that we have to go through. And specifically with depression, um, what they're fine now, now we're into biochemical and, you know, functional MRI kind of research. And what they find is that after about two weeks, the um, depressive symptoms return and, and the impact of the, um, of the medicine itself. And I can't remember right now how they were measuring the biochemical changes. So it must be serotonin levels. The serotonin, serotonin levels go down and people begin to feel depressed again after about two weeks or so. And what's interesting to me about that is the churches in Brazil that use ayahuasca as a sacrament, often they hold ceremonies, church services, every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so they must have intuitively or observationally figured out that there's a need for another dose mm-hmm. after about two. Now, not that they talk about the sacrament as a medicine, it's a, it's a religious sacrament, but somehow they must have realized that people need another, um, sacramental experience. And it's true, um, psychiatrically in terms of depressive symptoms and biochemically in terms of serotonin. Mm-hmm. So, and then people can say, well, then they've become dependent on ayahuasca. Well, not any more dependent than they are on their Prozac or, or Paxil. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes medicine needs to be used, um, regularly. Well, and, and it doesn't have the same side effects that people then have right, to deal with. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the side effects, I mean, besides the, you know, in a ceremony, there's often a report of, uh, purging, vomiting, and diarrhea. And, um, people like to talk about that for extended periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the immediate side effect. But often the next morning, People wake up feeling better than, weller than well is the phrase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I first came across, um, ayahuasca ceremonies. I was just getting ready to turn 60. It was over a dozen years ago. And, um, I said, this is like my, all my joints feel like they're oiled like the Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz. So I thought I had discovered the fountain of youth. <laughs> <laughs> That's not exactly true now that it's 12 years later, (laughs) but, um, people do feel weller than well in, in different ways. Mm -hmm. And that's quite different from the side effects of the SSRI antidepressants. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any other perspective from which to answer the question of ayahuasca and depression? Um, there's a really interesting thing that happens that if anyone wants to look up research, I, I, I would say Google Robin Carhart dash Harris. He's a British researcher and, and you can get a list of his publications at his academic website. And you'll find that if you just Google his name and he's doing 
primarily func- uh, functional MRI research. And it's not specifically with ayahuasca, but it's with psilocybin and LSD. But it's similar enough in terms of what these psychedelics do in the brain. And so all the psychedelics quiet the default mode network, which is not an anatomical part of the brain. It's a neurological network extending through the brain that maintains our running inner commentary and self-criticism and judgments, (laughs) and it supports our ego functioning and the story of our lives and how we interpret the world. I mean, he, he basically says, this is the counterpart to, to Freud's concept of the ego. So whatever our particular craziness is, it's in the default mode network and the psychedelics quiet that network. And so that opens up the possibility of our thinking differently, literally making new neurological pathways, new, new neurons are, are it's neurogenetics and nor, new neurons are being created and new pathways are being um, traveled through so that we can think and experience in different ways than whatever our history of depression has patterned in our brain. So I had one one young person I, I worked with, and he was having one or two major depressive episodes a year. And and I would say to him, this is these depressive episodes are hurting your brain. You're you're literally patterning your brain, training it to think in these depressive ways. And we all know what depressive ways are. You know, nobody understands me. I'm all alone. My the rest of my life is going to be like this. You know, it's never going to get any better. We have different versions of depressive thinking. And those patterns get laid down and the the grooves in the brain get deepened and more established. And the psychedelics open us up, first of all, to having distance from those patterns and to create new new thought patterns, new neurological connections. And and that's an incredible opportunity. Yeah, it's huge. So is there is there are there other things that you would add about the opportunities opened up with ayahuasca relative to addiction? Well, I think we understand even less about that. But certainly, um, it's very hard to separate addiction from the the pain of addiction and the depression and the low self-esteem and the frustration that's interwoven through addictive behaviors. Even though some addiction is clearly genetic, it's still impossible to separate out the, the other psychological components of it. And again, ayahuasca does a similar thing that it does with depression. It gives an opportunity to experience yourself differently and to, to have a, a different perspective. I mean, when I say people wake up the next morning and say, I see now that alcohol is a poison, that's an incredible, an incredibly objective perspective rather than being caught inside the drinking of alcohol. It's a reflective perspective from outside that experience. And I think that's very important in how addictions seem to, um, their grip seems to be loosened. It's not always a spontaneous, immediate cure. And we don't know who's going to have that experience and who's going to have to work this through. 
um, and have a lot of follow-up help. But uh, that per- that shift in perspective is an, an enormous part of the healing. Mm-hmm. And and I could go further with that, not that I understand it, but in 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 Buddhist training, in meditation training, where you're very carefully and in sophisticated ways observing how your mind works, there's a similar shift in not being caught in your thinking and being able to see how your thinking is is orchestrated from a, an objective perspective. And that also, it's some relief not being caught in the ego and the way we're constructed, but it opens that same opportunity for being different and choosing a different way of being in the world. And, you know, I, I could say something else. There was one person um, I, I, who was a subject in the study, and then I interviewed him after. And he, he said um, he, he had been messing around with cocaine and really in trouble with it. And he, um, after his ayahuasca experience, still was um, what he said was partying with cocaine way too much. And here's what was really interesting. And I felt guilty that Grandmother Ayahuasca had shown me this was wrong and not good for me, and yet I continued in that behavior. So that's a perfect example where it's not a miracle cure, but certainly he had all the insight and, and the perspective that eventually allowed him to stop and move on in his life. Mm. And he did do that. He did break free from that. Yeah. Um, so, but, but it's very interesting. And, and in that, I, I can just go one step further because this mm-hmm. is, um, in that conversation with him where he talked about the guilt he felt, I asked him, and this is, you know, it was a little bit of a leap, but I'd been in practice a long time. And I said to him very politely, did you by any chance go to Catholic school? Yeah. <laughs> Because nobody talks about guilt like that unless they've mm-hmm. had that parochial school training. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, yes, how did you know? And Grandmother Ayahuasca does not, from my experience at least, uh, she doesn't work by instilling guilt. Mm-hmm. So this was really specific to this guy's history. Yeah. And yeah. it was this really interesting blend and overlay of Grandmother Ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. But it's it's this is a this is a, a a a story that's different from I woke up the next morning and never tried cocaine again. Right, it's a different story, and you see more of the struggle and the process and the need for therapy and a witness and someone to, to for guidance. You get you yeah. can get a sense of that by the description of the struggle. Yeah. So and then so. What are the opportunities that you see opened up with ayahuasca relative to people and their anxiety? Well, anxiety is linked um, with depression neurologically. So a lot of the, um, I mean, some, you know, even the reactions to the SSRIs, some people get more anxious. Some people are less anxious when they take an antidepressant. So it's linked together. And I think we we know less about um, anxiety and the psychedelics than anything else. The one way we, there is research data on it is with people with terminal cancer. 
And there's a certain anxiety that goes along with, you know, knowing that your Mm -hmm. time is very limited and, and dealing with the pain and, and the fears that are around dying and whatever more pain that's going to come with the process of dying. And, you know, you can just imagine all the fears and anxieties that go with that. And so they have done studies. I, I think it's mostly with, I think it's again, psilocybin and LSD and, and certainly the anxieties. This is after one or two, uh, um, experiences. Um, I, I'm trying not to use the word trip, but it's basically one or two trips. Um, what's most amazing to me is their reported pain is reduced and their need for opiates is reduced. Mm-hmm. And so we know that the psychedelics are helpful dealing with anxiety. And of course we know there's that, that, um, cascade that happens with anxiety and pain and that the psychedelic experience really changes that whole process. You sort of get off that roller coaster and, um, people become much more accepting of their own dying process and that reduces the pain and makes the time remaining more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, we only, we unfortunately don't have that much time left. So I wanted to give you a chance to just share with listeners, what is your vision for this possible future that you're sharing with the book? Well, the, I think the immediate future is for people to have more interest and concern about how do I integrate this experience into my life and how can, how can a therapist help me in that process? Um, and I think those, those are sort of essential questions that need to be asked. And that doesn't mean everybody's going to need therapy, but enough of us will. I mean, I got help after a number of, um, ceremonies and when I felt I really needed help with this. And so those, that's the first level of questioning. So, so people in the ayahuasca community itself can think about having a therapeutic process. And then having more therapists experienced with these realms and personally with Grandmother Ayahuasca so that there are more people available um, who really understand the territory. And then there's a, already now a resurgence of research. I think Ayahuasca will be one of the last psychedelics to be researched because it's so difficult to control dosage and potency. But... Um, that this uh, there's an uptick in research on LSD and psilocybin, and and many of those findings will apply to ayahuasca as well, so that we can begin as a culture to um, appreciate what the therapeutic possibilities are. And then you know I have this other sort of side thing that um, doesn't necessarily have to be related to ayahuasca or even the other psychedelics, but is really about mystical experience or unusual spiritual experiences. And the, the, um, the Pew Research Institute and the other, you know, major survey, which I'm just not thinking of right now, um, when they ask people, the question is, uh, have you had, uh, a religious or spiritual experience? 50% of the population says yes. But we don't talk about these experiences. And when someone talks to me about them, 
they start out by saying, I've never told anybody, but <laughs> this happened when my grandfather was dying, you know, and I had this experience of leaving my body. I mean, people have unusual spiritual experiences. They don't know how to talk about them. They don't know how to understand them, and they're not culturally supported. And I think as a culture, we have to open up to these experiences and supporting each other in having these unusual experiences and learning from them and sharing them so other people can learn from them as well. So that's the broader perspective for me. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I guess of course you would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, thinking I'm, of the moment I was speaking mm-hmm. in a room full of psychiatrists and psychologists about oh, my own initiatory experience. How brilliant. And, you know, and just saying to them, people, I do understand that every single thing I'm saying, you're diagnosing. I do exactly. understand that. And at the same time, <laughs> I am not not tracking reality. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and yeah. many of you in this room have had unusual experiences as well. Exactly. But they're not going to talk about them. Right. And and for me, this this really actually circles back more to my earlier training as a scientist, which is, you know, a good scientist doesn't throw out data just because they don't data. like it. So, you know, you know, Charlie Tard, who did a lot of parapsychological and altered states research, yeah. he at one point was collecting um, mystical childhood mystical experiences from scientists. It was a very specific um, data collection, and plenty wow. of scientists wrote in with childhood mystical experience. Sure. But <laughs> have they told other, you know, are they talking about them at conferences? I don't think so. <laughs> right, yeah, of course not. Right. Um, okay, so I just wanted to circle back to what Rachel was just saying and be a little more specific here. In, in other words, this book, Listening to Ayahuasca, is valuable both for those who are interested in the experience of, of receiving ayahuasca and, and benefiting fully from that experience. It talks about preparing and following up. The book's also valuable for therapists who might be interested in sort of taking Rachel up on her offer here, which is to get more therapists able to to support people in that integration and so one book for everybody <laughs> <laughs> well everybody is still a small subset <laughs> um, not you <laughs> but in the general population you know we are still dealing with a small subset of people but yes it's before and after and then for therapists so thank you for that yeah, yeah. And I wanted to make sure because we did make it clear that it was a good book for therapists, but we didn't really make it so clear that it's also a good book for anybody who's interested in getting some questions answered before they dive into the experience. Um, so let's have a graceful – I, I was dying to ask about you to clarify the distinction for people, the difference between sacrament and medicine, um, but we're kind of running out of time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big conversation. It was anyway. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, we we've covered things that I think are most beneficial for the most people, in particular for those people who are suffering from things that have been diagnosed as depression and anxiety and and all of that. And that's important to speak to that community of people. 
So, Rachel, thank you so much for thank uh, you, taking Christina. time. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoyed this. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, thanks for writing the book. It was uh, many, many years in the making. Um, I want to remind people that you can reach out to Rachel through the website, Listening to Ayahuasca. And those who can't spell it, it's A Y A H U A S C A. Listening to Ayahuasca.com. And, um, let us just take a moment here and give gratitude to our ancestors for dreaming of a better future that we could all be here together at this juicy time. So much possibility and so much need for that possibility to bear fruit. We give gratitude to all the energies that have gathered around us here today, to the beautiful earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites us all. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good week.